0: Welcome to The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. This show is about the stories, assumptions, and perspectives that either create or block our ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with those that are in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm a leadership coach and facilitator with a relentless curiosity for helping people, teams, and organizations thrive in pursuit of making their vision and purpose a reality. The goal is to bring you new insights, perspectives, and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes, curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly, and community, where we grow together. Let's explore the Leadership Mind. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Leadership Mind podcast. I'm your host, Basim Wabakis, and today I am joined by Uh, the powerful and prolific Michael Bungay-Staner. And uh, Michael, you you probably know him from uh, his best-selling book, uh, The Coaching Habit, which sold over a a million copies. Today, we're going to be talking about his latest book, which has blown my mind. And I'm sure as we dig into it uh, today, it will do the same for you. It's called How to Begin. He also has this incredible podcast that is called Two Pages with MBS where he has guests come on and read two pages from any book that's been influential to them and then deconstruct, uh, like, what does that actually say about what's meaningful for them? And it's a yeah. different take on podcasts. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I, I highly recommend it to those that are listening. Michael, welcome.
1: Oh, thanks. That's a really nice welcome. Thanks, Massimo. Uh,
0: it's my pleasure. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, as I, as I read How to Begin, I was first struck by two things. Uh, one, the book starts on the first page. Right. Which I just loved and it, and it captured me and I thought, okay, I'm on, I'm going to be on for a ride here. <laughs> uh, there's, there's no lead up. We're, we're jumping right in. For you, where did this start? You've, you've written amazing books before. You're yeah. you're such an admired thought leader. Um, where did this emerge from? How did this begin for you?
1: Uh, well, so if you, if people know me at all, they might know me for my book, The Coaching Habit, and that came out six years ago and has taken off and been a great success. And then about four years ago, I wrote a companion book to that called The Advice Trap, which goes a little deeper and kind of why is it so hard to stay curious a little bit longer? Because the coaching habit, that's the champion. It's like, can you just stay curious a little bit longer? And I realized as I got feedback about the book that there were some people who loved it, just went changing the way I think about coaching and I teach coaching and how I shop and do coaching. Um, and that's lovely. Um, and then there are, there's always a, people on the other end of the bell curve who go, you suck, and your book sucks, and coaching sucks, and I hate you. And I'm like, okay, we're not meant to be together. That's fine as well. But there's a group of people in the middle who are like, I like your book. I like the questions. I like the ideas in it. I'm finding it really hard to actually put it into action. <laughs> I get it in theory, but in practice, it's a barrier. And The Advice Trap was a book that was trying to go a little deeper into why do we resist what feels like a simple behavior change, stay curious a little bit longer. And it was an attempt to do that. And as I wrote it, there's lots I love about that book, but I just thought, I still haven't quite cracked this behavior change thing. And one of the things that I try and do Massimo, and maybe I'm known a little bit for is to try and make complex stuff a little more simple and a little more accessible. So people go, Oh, okay you know, for the coaching habit, people go, Oh, if this is coaching, I can probably do that. I that mean, that's, I love that response. It's perfect. So I was like, maybe I'll take another crack at this behavior change stuff and try and figure it out because, you know, there's plenty of stuff around habits. I mean, my book's called the coaching habit, but then James clear and atomic habits and stuff. So there's all that stuff about habit building. I'm like, it's, but it's more than that. Habits isn't a be all and end all of it. So I started writing a book and uh, wrote a first draft of, you I mean, half of it. send it to some friends, and my friend Misha, who lives here in Toronto with me, went. It's a terrible book, Michael. <laughs> I've read sixty pages of this. It's, it's. I have no idea. I don't even know what it's about. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, you know, the saying is, famous Hemingway, first draft of anything is shit. So yeah. I was like, okay, so it's all right. It's a crappy first draft, and I like crappy first drafts in theory, but in practice, I was like, okay, is there anything I can, I can actually. Kind of save from the, the rubble yes. of this first draft. So I dug into it. And one phrase I thought had some resonance and had some kind of heft and truth to it. And it is, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. I was like, that feels true. And that's true for me. I've noticed my growth an expansion in terms of ambition and vulnerability and compassion and influence is going to, when I step out to the edge of who I am and what I know and flail around and try and do something that's beyond me. And so I was like, that's interesting. So how do I get and help people figure out how to work on the hard stuff? Because that feels like it's the way that behavior change will happen. So I'm like, oh, maybe I'm writing a book on goals, <laughs> goal setting. That's unexpected because I don't, I don't think that much in the way of goals. Um, and actually, the more I thought about it, the more I thought. Actually, I don't love any of the stuff I know about goals. I, I don't like smart goals. I think you know I've never used them. I've never fully. I can't remember what any of the the Letters stand for. Right. and it turns out I'm not the only one. There's like each one of those letters has like three or four competing words. <laughs> and some of them are contradictory. It's like we all approximately know what it's about. But the real thing about smart goals is it is mostly about tidying it up, making it smaller, making it measurable, making it reductive, making it timely. I'm like, but what if you got the wrong goal? <laughs> you're just polishing a turd. If you're trying to make a bad goal smart, it doesn't help at all. I'm like, that doesn't work. And there's lots of people who I found out feel the same. When I go, I don't like smart goals. A chat on a webinar it's like, I hate smart goals too. And I'm like, oh, good. It's not just me. And then there are other things like BHAGs, like James, uh, Jim Collins, BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. Ugly word, BHAG. But um, the, you know the hairy, audacious goal thing is, is interesting, but it tends to exist mostly at the top of a corporation do not many people who go, I've got a hag. It feels more like a corporate directional setting. So I'm like, how do I find something in the middle? And I th- thought of this idea of a worthy goal. And a worthy goal is not meant to be worthy and sort of uh, ennobling. I'm a saint on the way to sainthood. You know, and I have a you know Christian background or something. It's not about that kind of moral righteousness. It is about how do you find a goal that is worthy of your time and your life and your effort and your commitment and your focus and your attention? How do you find a goal that's worthy of that? And that became the seed of the book, you know? And so this idea of you need to weave together thrilling and important and daunting as the three core attributes that find a worthy goal. You need to draft and redraft and really wrestle with your goal so that you can find the best possible expression of what your worthy goal might be. Then you need to get cracking on it.
0: How did you get clarity that it was thrilling, daunting, and important, that those were the three legs of the stool that would help us to know whether a goal is, is worthy of our, our time, effort, yeah. resources?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. One of the things that I am good at and kind of wide for a little bit is, is that kind of, my friend Shannon calls it thingifying, thingifying concepts. Like I'm, you know, in the advice trap I talk about the the advice monster. I say, Do you know your advice when, you know when somebody starts talking and your advice monster looms up out of the dark and everybody goes, Oh yeah, I know that, I know that creature. I've met him or her or whatever it is. Um and so I've just got a, a an inclination towards metaphor and simile and and finding ways to try and articulate something in a in a compact way. And you know, it's partly partly wiring and partly practice. I've been doing it for a while. Um, And so I, you know, I sat down and I I know enough and I've read enough to kind of go, look, I'm trying to find something about external motivation. I'm trying to find something about internal motivation. Three is better than two because two sets up a polarity and three sets up an interesting triangle. So, you know, a triangle is um, the most stable architectural form. Um, And it creates an interesting series of tensions across it. Five is too many because five is now too much for people's brains to take. So I was like, I think I'm after three things. And I've just played around with it, around with ideas and language and found thrilling and important and daunting. And I drafted, you know, just like in the book, I talk about the importance of drafting and redrafting a worthy goal. It's the same for writing a book you draft it and you redraft it and you redraft it and words that were good-ish come, you hope become better and stronger.
0: With, with this process that you have, that you've used um, through all of your books, I, I love this term thingifying because it, it, it's true. You're able to take really concept uh, complex things or things mm. that seem elusive like coaching and make it accessible. And someone could do it in 10 minutes and have a meaningful coaching conversation. Yeah, Profound. What is like your starting place. I understand that there's a, there's a drafting notion that you you yeah. hold things loosely and, and you're open to things being wrong yeah. or, or changing your opinion. But where do you know to, to start with that?
1: Well, it, it most powerfully starts when I'm trying to solve a problem. Like I wrote the coaching habit. Cause I was just like, I'm just annoyed by the way coaching training happens. It's terrible. It's, it's, it makes, I mean, I had a really clear goal to try and unweird coaching and make it more accessible and less complicated and less weird. I want a bunch of people who go, I'm not really the coaching type, but I can do this. And this feels like it might be helpful. And, you know, so having an irritation and, you know, when I, just, when I realized how irritated I was at smart goals, I'm like, that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. I've now got, I've now got a thing that I'm trying to sort out here. But they all, all these stuff grows in common soil, which is around uh, kind of unlocking our greatness. You know, I want people to be the best people they can be, not just for their own sake, but for the world's sake. I mean, the world is struggling. And if I can play a small role by helping more people be the best version of themselves, then that's a good contribution for me. And so, um, you know, the stuff that I've written and the stuff that I'll write in the coming years are all around How do you build better versions of yourself? How do you build better relationships? How do you focus more on stuff that matters? And so it's, it's, you know, my friend Anton goes, so you're saying it, so it's your Messiah complex. I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. It's my Messiah complex. I'm trying to save the world.
0: Yes. Uh, in, in the most, uh, self-deprecating
1: in humorous way. Right? <laughs> well, that's right. I can't take myself too seriously. Cause if you saw what was going on in my brain, you'd realize you can't take yourself too seriously, but you know, I, um, I it's, it's an, I'm just kind of riffing off that, which is like, it's, uh, I take the work pretty seriously, even if I don't take myself too seriously, but I don't diminish myself either. You know, um, I feel like I have worked hard to find this combination of great confidence and great humility. (laughs) Like I am confident. I'm like, there's a, there's a line I have at the end of all my emails, my signature, which is like, you're awesome and you're doing great. And um, people love that, you know, they get a bit disappointed when they discover it's my signature and I haven't actually written it deliberately and specifically and only to them. But, you know, fundamentally, even when things, you know, even when things are on fire, I'm like, I'm awesome and I'm doing great. Um, And I'm also just pretty aware of what I'm good at and also what I'm really not good at and where where I'm flawed and where I'm a bit of a, you know, a hot mess, all of that's all true. I think that's part of what humility is in its most useful way is like, it's not, it's not, Make modesty. It's having a good sense of who you are and having your feet on the ground. So you're feeling your heels and your toes and the balls of your feet. you got that groundedness.
0: Well, you, I think you you hit on that in the book. I mean, in the second section around um, getting to the place of commitment around your worthy goal, you um, expose the vulnerability of yourself, but you do so in a way that is of integrity there. there's, There's not a a hint of shame in the acknowledgement that these are shortcomings that you may have. And I, um, what strikes me is it, that there's um, some elements of uh, Robert Keegan's work around immunity to change, which I've yeah, done with
1: absolutely,
0: people it is. for many, many years. And I was struck by the uh, vulnerability that you shared, Michael, and and the ownership of those shortcomings. And I'm curious, what was that process like for you? And what was it like putting it into the pages of the book? You know, yeah. in my experience, yeah. I've done this with leaders, and it's um it rocks them to their core to yeah. admit these things. and that's in a you know confined space where the world's not going to see it. You've published <laughs> this for for all of us.
1: yeah, uh, which still might be a pretty confined space. It depends how many copies of the book sell, but we'll see. Um, so first of all, just to acknowledge that that second section around commitment is, my attempt to simplify the immunity to change stuff, which I've done the training with Bob and Lisa. And um, I really like a lot of the mechanics of the immunity to change. I just feel that it's a, it's a slightly overly academic, overly complicated (laughs) way of, of, of explaining that. And, you know, that's catnip to me. Cause I'm like, Oh, I can take that, which I can see the good bones in it, but it's hidden and try and make it more accessible for people. So I'm, I am trying to play with that immunity to change stuff, um, which also has its own uh, get to um, uh, Ron Heifetz yes. and adaptive change and technical change. Um, you know, honestly, so I know as a facilitator, if i think of myself as anything perhaps it's you know a facilitator that one of the elements of being a master facilitator is to be the strongest signal in the room people respond to the strongest signal in the room so if i'm leading a group in some way and i want the group to be open and vulnerable and courageous and um, light-hearted i need to i need to be the strongest signal because just through. I mean, it's brain chemistry, mirror neurons, people will respond and mirror, mirror that. And the amount of vulnerability a leader shows is the amount of vulnerability a group is capable of. So I knew that to be of service to this group, I had uh, to the people who are reading the book, I had to be as vulnerable as I could. And not in that kind of fake, humble you know, pseudo vulnerability, you <laughs> know, you're just like, uh, you, you you're, you're, you're burnishing your status rather than, than kind of dismantling it. And I'm like, you know what? I, I'm actively interested in dismantling status and stepping out away from power so other people can step into it. It's a big driver of mine. So I was like, it, it wasn't, it wasn't that scary um, in part because um. I, I've, I mean, I've got this kind of core level of confidence, which is like, look, all of this is true. I'm still awesome. And I'm doing great. I am a, you know, I'm a mess. I screwed up. I've had a thousand false starts. You don't even know all the things that I've half asked my way through and it hasn't worked. You know, uh, you, you get to see the, some of the, some of the successes I've had, like I've written a book and you know, I've been a Rhodes scholar or whatever it might be and kind of make up that that's the story of me. Um, But I'm like, you know what? I'm 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 just as kind of stumbling around trying to make it up and figure it out as I go. And I'm awesome and I'm doing great. So it really wasn't that scary for me to put that out there because yeah, I've got not much to lose.
0: (laughs) And you can accept both as true. The you know, the duality of both is true. Oh yeah. And as I was telling you, I'm I'm currently writing a book on self-compassion, which is really this ability to recognize. I'm awesome and doing great. And I'm also human and fallible. And both right. are true. And I don't have to hold either one in conflict with each other. And right. so um, when our flaws are surfaced, we can be kind to ourselves. And when how awesome and great we are is surfaced, right. we can be kind to ourselves, but not inflate either one to the detriment of our um, yeah. you know, humanity and connection and humility integrity.
1: You know, I, I just I just ran a little workshop for people on my mailing list around paradoxes, the five paradoxes for a meaningful life. And I, you know, paradox or just understanding that there are always these kind of polarities that we're being pulled between. And it's not choosing one over the other. It's actually going, where's the optimal tension? You know, where's the, if I'm, if this, if this is a rubber band, what's the optimal stretch for this rubber band so that I can be the fullest expression of who I am. And we're like, you know, well Whitman, we contain multitudes. It's all true.
0: i I hope that you'll deconstruct and use your superpowers uh, for thingifying uh, polarities and polarity management if it's not already on your list of things. I, I, right yeah,
1: I, I I stumbled through it yesterday when I ran this webinar. I was like i've just I've done some good explaining here and some bits i'm I can feel myself tiptoeing or tap dancing over the thin ice around the I'm not entirely sure what this is. I try to, I mean, this is stories of, of failure of sorts. So I'm, I'm talking about uh, paradoxes. And I, I remember reading um, this uh, writer called Robert Fitz and I'm like, Oh, and he has this great thing about productive tensions. And I'm like, great, hey, that's great. So, so I start kind of referencing that a little bit. And it turns out one of the, one of the people on the call is his former COO and CFO. And she's like, first of all, it's not Robert Fitz, it's Robert Fritz. So you got his name wrong. I'm like, oh, that's embarrassing. And secondly, this is what he talks about when he's talking about productive tension. It's nothing what you're trying to explain here at all. You might want to go back and read his stuff. And I'm like, yep, I should do that. <laughs> I I got that wrong. No matter. The rubber bands thing still works.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, derivative. You know, it's yeah. uh, the copy of it. and loses yeah, its exactly. ability. Um, it, when, when you're in this book and you get, we get to this place where you're talking about, remember your best self. Cause it's, mm-hmm. we go through this process of, we, you know, define this, this worthy goal mm-hmm. and really workshop it over and over to make sure that this is something that we're legitimately committed to and yeah. go through this powerful process. And and I think the improvements that you've made to, to simplify the immunity to change process, Michael, I've resonated very much with me okay oh, um, specifically getting down to what are the prizes and punishments when we think yeah. about, about yeah. that tension. um when we step into this place of recognizing okay remembering our best self yeah. your signature line is now you're awesome you're doing great <laughs> yeah is there a link to that and and you know where where does that stem from and how do we help people yeah maintain the momentum and the excitement that they have after they've you know shed their bullshit? Um, but then the gremlins creep back in.
1: Yeah. So the gremlins do creep back in and remembering your best self is important because there's plenty of times when you're not being your best self. It's still true that you're awesome. And it's still true that you're doing great. You're just not being your best self yet. And if you're committed to a worthy goal, having a sense of what your best self is and what the way back to your best self might be, can be really helpful, really kind of grounding. And the exercise in the book is called this, not that. And it basically says, don't just, don't just write a list of who you are at your best. Cause those lists are always a bit abstract and a bit, and there's no real tension between them. It's just a list of words. This, not that says, this is what I'm like at my best. And this is what I'm like when I'm 15% off my best for that particular attribute. And and it's most powerful, these things will have some degree of viscerality. That's even a word, visceralness, you know, kind of a, you've got some body memory of what this is like, you know? Oh yeah. I've, I've seen me not failing, not flailing, but kind of just off my game and others might not even notice it, but I noticed it. And, and what does that look like? You know, what does it feel like? What's the language for that? And what's the opposite of that when you're actually at your best? So, you know, I give examples of my own and I'm like, you know, I am stepping forward, not stepping back that I totally understand what that means. I've got a physical memory of what it means for me to step into the moment and what it means for me to back away from it. You know, I'm a provocateur rather than a sycophant. Like I'm at my best when I've got this kind of light teasing, kind of like a little tease. I'm, I'm, I like, teasing people and pushing them and, and, you know, (laughs) making them go, what the hell are you doing? Um, I'm not at my best when I'm trying to suck up to power, being a sycophant. And, you know, I can remember uh, times when I've been on stage in front of a big crowd and I've been provocative and I've been great. It's just like, man, I rock that. And then there's other times where I, I was, I speaking in Detroit, actually, and I was at this big auto show thing. And the whole audience was alpha males. (laughs) They were like, they're all six foot four and steel gray hair and steel gray suits and white shirts and red ties and kind of strong handshakes. And I'm not, I'm not much of an alpha male. So I'm like, oh, I can feel myself shrinking in this company because they don't feel like my people so much. Um, And I'm like, oh, I can feel me being a sycophant. I need to get back to remembering that provocative is me at my best. And that helped me transcend the, transcend the moment. So I think, I mean, why don't I ask you this? You know, you're thinking and writing about self-compassion. How does this tool and this idea of getting back to your best self relate to that?
0: I think it's closely aligned. Yeah. Um, I think we have to have a, a degree of self-awareness at, at all times at best to know when, we're at, you know when we're at our best self and when we're not. And and how far off the mark are we? Yeah, you know, and so much of self compassion is about being mindful. You know, there's there's three kind of core tenets to it, and one of them is about being mindful. What are my thoughts, feelings, emotions right now telling me? And and I think about them as just data. Yeah. We can look at data objectively. Right. So we need to be able to separate ourselves from the emotion of looking at subjectively as my emotion, but I'm feeling anxious or nervous. What mm-hmm. what is that telling me? Yes. Um, and then what do I choose to do with that, which steps into, um, you know, self-kindness and again, knowing yourself or knowing you at your best, what are the things that you need to do in order to rise to the occasion? So, you know, for your example, you practice self, you know, self-compassion and the notion of I'm not at my best right now. Cause I'm <laughs> a sycophant. Yeah. yeah. What do I need to do? And it sounds like you needed to tell yourself, remind yourself that you're at your best when you're being provocative.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That, that's why this exercise is most helpful for me, not so much about when I'm at my best. It's when I feel like I'm off my game because I can notice that I put language to recognizing what it looks like and feels like when I'm off my game. So if I'm like, oh, I can feel myself backing up rather than stepping forward. I know what to do with that. I need to find a way to step forward. So now what does that look like in this moment, in this situation and in this context?
0: What, what level of um, judgment or not being judgmental to yourself plays when you're, when you're in this place of recognizing I'm stepping back or I'm, you know, being a sycophant?
1: Yeah, I, um, I for me, not much because I'm pretty, I'm, I'm relative, I'm pretty kind to myself, you know, I'm awesome and I'm doing great. Um, and there's a, there's a line that I've stolen from the, a book called The Art of Possibility, uh, Ros and Ben Zander wrote that 20 years ago, perhaps now. And um, Ben Zander is a, a conductor, and when he teaches classes, and you know, and the orchestra screws up because that's what you do, that's why you rehearse. He suggests you throw your hands in the air and you go, "How fascinating! How fascinating!" And I do love that as a reaction because, first of all, because it's visceral. It's physical. It's a literal shift in your body state. And that somatic wisdom and somatic shift, I think, is part of this. Um, You know, we. I I think if you want to think differently, you you be differently. Your body leads your brain. Um, And how fascinating just has this lovely balance of I'm noticing it. It's not the end of the world. I can learn from this. Um, This is, in fact, a learning moment rather than a defining moment um i'm it's it's kind of vaguely amusing it's fascinating, it's fascinating. um yeah and um and you know stop making such a big deal of it so um i i think you know i suspect i'm not sure how that works if if it's a real disaster that you're wrestling with, you know like russia invading ukraine um but I do think that when we get entangled in the small stuff of our day-to-day life and we kind of beat ourselves up for it, going, look, I'm awesome and I'm doing great. Isn't this fascinating? What's happening right now is, uh, is a nice way to treat yourself. That's, that's how I feel like I treat myself and that works for me.
0: Is this something that you've learned over time or have you always had this disposition to
1: be kind to yourself? Uh, I suspect I've always had the disposition to back myself you know, I'm like, I think I'm capable of, of big stuff. And, you know, my, I'm coming to my parents about this, not that long ago. And they're like, you know, we spent your whole first 20 years of your life waiting for you to finally land in a pile of shit and learn your lesson. And somehow you never did. You always kind of landed and went, ta-da. It was like a disaster. You're still like, ta-da. And now watch me reframe this as some sort of success. And I'm like, great. Um, so uh you know I have moments where I where i I feel bad about myself for a, a bit, but it's not a it doesn't linger like you know yesterday i I ran this webinar, three thousand people on it, so it's a big crowd, and I want to teach about these paradoxes, but I also want to sell them uh, the course, the how to begin course, the video course that's part of the the book and I'm like I'm trying to get a bunch of people to buy into the course that's the that's the marketing reason for doing this and the 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 team had prepared a little slide deck for me about in the middle of the of the session and I, I kind of whiffed on it I kind of did the usual not, not usual but the occasional oh this is awkward oh I don't want to I don't really want to sell stuff why don't I just skip through this awkward moment and be a bit dismissive of it and a bit denigrating of it and then I get back to the teaching where I'm most comfortable and you know when we got on the call after the call and got feedback jam on the marketing team went you know kind of kind of let yourself down and let us down by doing that I was like yeah I did I didn't prepare for it I didn't own it I didn't say this course is really good how do I how do I make people really want to do this because I'll be helping them if I'm doing that I missed all of that. So I was like, damn it. Because <laughs> I've, I've, I've learned and relearned and relearned and then forgotten yet again that lesson for 25 years now. So I'm like, I really wish I could remember that. Um, but then I went, you know what? I can think of a solution. I'll I'll, re, I'll re-film that little section. And then when we release the, the recording to people, it'll have a better sales picture. So maybe we'll convert some more people that way. So, and now I'm like, I'm good. I'm done. I'm moving on now.
0: You recognize the slip up. You own the mistake. You found a solution, and let's like, yeah. on.
1: And you know, I'm like, I, I'm, I like, I kind of gave myself permission to feel bad for a little bit. I'm like, damn it, <laughs> and then I'm like, it, I'm still essentially awesome, regardless <laughs> of that, because honestly, it's a, ma- you know, it's a marketing call. Let's not get too hung up about things.
0: Yeah, uh, Michael, I want to go back to this. The the what you have done to it to evolve um, Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy's work in immunity to change. And mm. I'm curious, what was your process when you think about this, this gift that you have to kind of deconstruct things that are complex, yeah. make them more simple? What was the process and how did you get to this outcome? I worked through it my, myself uh, in the context of this book that I'm writing. Yeah, Having done uh, the immunity to change process with you know several thousand leaders in my career, Yeah. Uh, I was refreshed and I was also, why didn't I think of this? (laughs) Michael really, really captured something here that uh, that is additive to the great work that, you know, has come before.
1: Yeah. Well, the starting point is to go, there's something really powerful here. What's getting in the way of it, of of it being more understood and more powerful and less complicated. And, um, you know, I design programs and I write books, I think I, I try and think like a designer. And as a designer, my motto or my mantra, as I said, is "What's the least I can teach that would be the most useful." Love that. So you know, for programs and books, I'm const- constantly trying to take stuff out so they're more spacious. Because often putting more content in is just an act of insecurity that you haven't got enough good stuff yet. I'm like, you know what? I want as little as I can, but all of it to be as, as good as I can. And I just felt that Bob and Lisa's process was so, uh, Robert Keegan, Lisa Leahy, the two authors and, and inventors of Immunity to Change. It was just, it was just a bit ugly, like the, the little chart that they designed. And I actually went to, I went, you know, you, it's called the four column thing, but you've got this kind of fifth column that's kind of jammed in there. Wow. What's the story for that? And they went, I think Lisa was like, Well, you know, we came up with this, the worry box, like three years after we designed the four column box, and we'd already called it the four column model. So we didn't want to add a new column. So we thought we'd just put it down there. And I was like, Oh my God, that just offends every, every, every essence of a designer in me. It's just, it's terrible. <laughs> oh. And there's just ways visually, that I thought that, that it could just be, it could be more understand, understandable for people. And then also just using language that just felt more, more natural for people. So people understand the tension and the choices that they're making. So I just went like, I think I can do this better. And then I just, I just practiced teaching it. And I'm like, how fast can I teach the immunity to change process? Like I've taken somebody through the entire immunity to change process in under 10 minutes. And it, it's, when you learn it, it feels like it needs to be a half day session, you know, it's kind of like this deep thing. I'm like, you know what, actually speed really helps because people don't have enough time to get trapped into their own head. They're just, they're just kind of blurting stuff out. So I was like, you know, it's like I, I, I had actually probably spent five or six years playing around with trying to teach it and trying to use it and trying to explain it to find out what resonated for people and what didn't.
0: And what did you uncover through that process?
1: Well, the key, the essential insight for this process is we are more committed to the status quo than we realize. And they've actually got a great metaphor, which is buried a bit in their work, which is we've got a foot on the brake, even as we're trying to pump the accelerator to try and get going. And until you realize you get your foot on the brake and what that brake is, you're never going to make much progress on the thing that. That matters. And so I think it's just trying to draw that forward and make that even more obvious, you know, so, you know, the way I, I've redone it is, uh, you know, you, you've got a choice. If you don't do this thing, that you spend time thinking about your worthy goal, what are the prizes and punishments of not doing it of staying committing to the status quo, because there are short term wins. And there are longer term costs. Mm-hmm. But then if you really commit to it, what are the prizes and punishments? What's the, what do you get from really going for your worthy goal, but what's at risk? Cause there is stuff at risk. And it's kind of to uncover that those two things that often stay in the shadow. First of all, what's the benefit of me maintaining the status quo and then what's really at risk by me going, trying to break the status quo. And they're kind of the same, but they're slightly different, but that's often stuff that stays in the shadow and this process brings it out.
0: It is sometimes I think we treat it as a, as a, as a polarity when it's not actually right. Uh, meaning we, we keep it in our mind, you know, as long as I'm thinking about this goal, it's still alive. I haven't killed it entirely, but I'm not doing anything with it.
1: Right. right.
0: Um, when it's really not a polarity, it is either to do or not to do. Um, and that's what I think you, you get to the core of.
1: Okay. Yeah. Thank you.
0: In, in the, decision to to make the commitment and move forward people have chosen you know to to commit to something that is worthy and um and scary
1: yeah
0: how do you set people up for success because it will likely take longer and be more painful than <laughs> we, you know our our minds would even imagine
1: yeah so i probably don't try and set people up for success because that's a promise i can't make um, I try and set people up for progress, which, you know, rhymes, so I quite like that. Not success, but progress. Um, because, you know, part of what you just understand eventually in doing all this work is it's often the process is more important than the outcome anyway. So, Indeed. Um, you know, how do you get going on this? You know, the, the emotional heart of this book is we unlock our greatness by working on the hard stuff. So it's not, we unlock our greatness by winning the trophy. It's like we unlock our greatness by working on the hard stuff it's in doing it's in undertaking the journey that stuff happens and magic happens and the next best version of you starts to show up so i'm trying to not promise success but to promise resilience and commitment and support and uh the the ability to try and keep going so you know, when when you take on a worthy goal, something that is thrilling and important and daunting, it, the, the way forward just isn't that obvious. You know, you're, you're you're writing a book, and I and I think I'm right in saying you're kind of framing that or seeing that as a potential worthy goal for you, and um, it, it feels like it might have the right heft, the right weight, because you're like, I think I know how to start with this, <laughs> but I don't totally know how it all goes. <laughs> how, how do I? How do I write it? How do I? draft it? How do I publish it? How do I market it? How do I build stuff behind it? So people, it isn't just a book. How do I think of myself as an author? All of that's like, it's a bit misty. (laughs) It's out there somewhere, but you're like, I'm not entirely sure. And, you know, for me, the way that you travel when you're doing a worthy goal is not, not kind of Google map style, where you type in a final destination and then, you know, methodically and, easily just finally get there left right left two rights in your 17 minutes it's more kind of trying to navigate and you're like here's a compass and i think that's my destination approximately over there but there's a misty valley in front of me so i can't i can't just go straight ahead I might walk off a cliff so you're like okay so i'm going to navigate to that rock over there that feels like the next destination and then i'm going to stop and i'm going to take my bearings again And this idea of finding a a shorter term destination, do your best to get to it then stop and retake your bearings because you get to the rock and everything's changed. You've changed. The project's changed. The landscape around you's changed. And it's this idea that it's, it's, it's not even a lot of little steps. It's a series of short, short journeys that make up the longer journey.
0: Yeah. And you had talked about getting the band together so that you're not traveling alone through the mist. Yeah. Tell me about who are the, like, how do you, how do you make sure that you got the right, the right players in the band?
1: Yeah. So I, I basically have borrowed uh, indigenous wisdom, native American wisdom, first nations wisdom from North America. And I was taught this around calling in the directions. And it's they, as I understand it, they will, they First, First Nations people in Canada will, some of them anyway, will use this as a way of starting a a gathering. And they're like they're bringing the best of the world into the gathering, so it can be as fruitful as possible. So they turn to the east and they call in the warrior spirit, and they turn to the west and they call in the healer or the lover spirit, and they turn to the well, it's the south. They turn to the west and they call in the magician or the teacher spirit and they turn to the north and they call in a ruler or a visionary spirit and those are four very powerful archetypes that if you have all of that you're well resourced so when you don't when you build the band and you like don't travel alone which is one of the key lessons and like what what do you need to call in what energies do you need to call in And what I like about this and is I think powerful is part of it is around what do I need to strengthen in myself? What do I already have in myself? What do I need to strengthen in myself? So you're calling the energies into yourself, but you can't, you're unlikely to have it all. So it's also around who else do I travel with, with this, you know, who do I need as teachers? Who do I need as encouragers? Who do I need that gives me a bit of fierceness? Who do I need who gives me a degree of ambition and kind of ruthlessness about fulfilling that ambition and you know, one person might offer a lot of that. Maybe it's four people that offer that. But the critical thing is to say, look, particularly if you're a middle-aged white man like I am, <laughs> stop thinking you can do it all by yourself, and get your people around you so that you you're not traveling alone. A because you need the help, and B because it's more fun.
0: Absolutely, uh, Michael. I want to be respectful of your time, and I'm as we as we close here. Uh, what needs to be said or what we, between you and I to kind of close this
1: out? <laughs> I like that. It's uh, one of my favorite questions. Um, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said? Um, well, let me ask you, what, what surprised you in this conversation? Because you do know my work a little bit. And so you set me up with a lot of great questions because you're uh, like, I know there's something for Michael to talk about this. Um, so I'm curious to know what, out of everything, what surprised you in this conversation?
0: Well that's a great conversation a uh, great great question um to be completely uh you know frank and transparent i was quite nervous coming into this conversation because <laughs> i am you know honestly uh um i think to say a fan of your, of your work it doesn't quite do it justice i i i admire your work and and what Thank you've you. contributed to the world and the way that you go about doing it um that your your style aesthetic um the approachability of it, the humor, the candor, you know, all of it is just, um, I wish there was more of it. I think you're exemplary and, and uh, unique. Um, so I think what, what struck me is just uh, you, observing your curiosity and things, learning from you and the way that you have gone through testing your assumptions, experimenting um having an idea and letting it go um but still uh persevering knowing that there's something here you know recognizing yeah. this behavior change and then it's not smart goals and maybe it's a book about goals and and now i think you know how to begin is something unique that that stands alone um and for me in the process of writing my own book it's very refreshing and the second thing i'd say is um the way that you've been able to take other people's work and be additive to that Mm-hmm. And uh, do so with respect and ad- um, admiration for their work, but also with permission to do that. Uh, I think that's something that I personally am still kind of grappling with is how, how do I honor the work that's been done before, but also recognize there's room for it to be improved upon okay. yeah. or yeah. to be accessible to a new audience. And so that's inspiring for me.
1: That's great. Thank you. That's great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Massimo.
0: Yeah, thank you, Michael.
1: Thanks for joining us for another episode
0: where we explore the leadership mind. Remember the mind is where the connection between our being and doing, our intent and our actions. Make sure to visit our website, mossimobacchus.com where you can like and subscribe to the show on Spotify, Anchor FM and Apple so you'll never miss an episode. To download my conscious communication workbook to support you in turning toxic conflict into collaborative gold, please visit mossimobacchus.com forward slash workbook. While you're at it, if you found the episode valuable, please rate the podcast on your preferred platform and share it with your community so others can join and listen as well. Until next week, remember to lead with compassion, curiosity, and gratitude. Leadership is a gift.